this morning, you're probably wondering, you know, we sang that song this morning. And we did. Edward chose that, and I was reminded how perfect that song is for the lesson tonight. And so I did ask Wes if he'd lead it again this evening. As we announced, um, obviously this, this year we're trying, and I think it, so far it's been very successful, we're doing a number of different things, having a number of different formats uh, for the PM services. Now, while tonight is, uh, in some senses, a normal sermon, um, nonetheless, it is, and I'm going to combine, really, two suggested topics. And um, there is a box out on the table in the foyer. I was asked about that the other day. That box that's out there, that is the one. If you want to suggest a topic or ask a question, it can be very simple or it can be very detailed. Feel free to write it out, drop it in that box, and Wes or I1 will address that in a lesson. In fact, this month, I'm going to do that tonight, and then Wes is going to come back and do part two of what started out as a great uh, discussion of judging, you remember, last month. So we'll look forward to that. Without any further delay, though, let's get into the lesson tonight. And if you picked up an outline or saw the title in last week's bulletin, you may have seen that it was taken from, it was a quote taken from something John the Baptist uh, says, and the idea of bringing forth fruits worthy of repentance. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the whole idea, in one sense, of sin separating us from God, that passage that Ekong read, the song that we've just sung, I think, expresses the sentiment of someone who feels that. We're going to talk about that. But also the fact that you can repent and be restored to God, but as someone suggested in a topic, you cannot just quote-unquote repent and then continue in the sin. And that is right. And so we want to talk about that. But for Christians, and think about the article that we had in the bulletin, if you got a chance to read that. For Christians, there is the removal of sin if one is penitent, if one truly repents. God will forgive, and as long as there is repentance, uh, there is uh, repentance. God will continue to forgive, and yet God does enjoin us. And I think we're going to see it's not just John the Baptist, but God enjoins us to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, having said all of that, that really is the topic tonight. So let me kind of break that down bit by bit. If you're looking on your outline, drop down, if you will, to the second major point there, the message of the Bible. And I've got some bold sections there. Um, the first, first of all, the message of the Bible is truly that we need to repent. I'm not sure that term is always understood. It's been my experience, at least in the last 40 years, that some people get it, they really understand it. And other people do not. They have some concept of what repenting is, but I'm not sure that's the biblical concept. So we want to talk a little bit about that, just briefly mention it. What does it mean to repent? Well, there are, in fact, several words in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, that are translated repent, and they will include one or more of the following ideas. And there aren't that many, so listen carefully to what the idea of repent is. First of all, there is regret. I think some people have the idea that to repent means to be sorry for what you've done. And so it is expressed as simply as, I'm sorry. And by saying I'm sorry or feeling that you're sorry for what you've done, that that is somehow repentance. 
That is certainly part of repentance. And there is a term that is sometimes, for example, when Judas regretted, he was sorry he had sold out Jesus and went and hanged himself. That term is translated in Matthew 27, repent. But that's not the full idea, and I think we understand that. Because the second idea of repenting is to have a good intention. That is, to really intend to change. When a person obeys the gospel, a person says, what do I need to do? Maybe much like the question in Acts 2, verse 38. You need to repent, and you need to be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. Now, the repentance part of it is an intention to change. I'm going to change my life. I mean to turn my life around, which is what the word literally means there, to turn around. I'm going to turn my life around. And to be baptized, to have all of the sins you've ever committed washed away, cleansed away. It is a good intention. It is intention to change. And that, together with being sorry, is certainly part of repentance, but it's still not the whole idea. So a third thing inherent in repentance is a complete change or turnaround in your life. You see, just... You know, intending to do it, just having a thought one day that, you know, I'm going to turn my life around, but not carrying through with that is not repentance. It's a, it's a good intention. And it is the intent, the, the willful intent to repent, but it's not turning things around. Sometimes I like to picture repentance. The easiest way to see repentance, a biblical picture, is to look at Paul. Paul is on a road to Damascus. He's on a course to go and kill Christians, put them in prison, whatever, persecute Christians. His whole life turns around. He believes in Jesus. He is sorry for what he's done. That's evident. We'll even read some passages that show that. But he carries through on it. The rest of his life is spent in turning around what he had once done. That's repentance. So to simplify, repentance includes the idea of regretting of being sorrowful. I'm sorry for what I've done. But it also includes the idea of change. If someone were to say to me, what does repent basically mean? I would say change. To turn your life around. That's what it means. So, when someone suggested the topic and said, you cannot just repent and continue the sin, inherent in that phrase is the understanding that many have. The idea of repentance being sort of a, you know, I'm sorry, and I, I mean to do better, but you don't do better. That's not repentance. And that's right then, exactly the way it was suggested. You cannot simply repent and continue in the sin. God is not allowing for that. And if we were to look in the Bible and we look at the phrase that I borrowed for the title of the lesson, what God is really saying and what, you know, John was saying, on that day that he began to prepare the way for the Lord. What, it, what the Bible is saying is you need to bring forth or bear fruit. You need to show, demonstrate. You need to do things that really exemplify, manifest, make it clear that you've changed. I'll give you the illustration I've given you before. You might find this funny. I do. But my brothers and I laugh about it sometimes. I was not a nice person as a teenager. You know that. And my younger brothers a lot of times suffered the consequences for that. If they had something I wanted, I was very much in the mind of taking whatever I wanted, no matter who it belonged to. 
So if they had something I wanted, I took it. And since I was bigger than they were, I beat them up if they didn't like it. That's the way it was. When I decided to become a Christian, I was away on a, on a trip, on a tournament. And when I came back, I've told you this before, I came into the house, the house was empty, they were all gone, and there on the stove were two Reese's Cups. Now you know my weakness, they, I had it then, I got it now, you know. So there were two Reese's Cups. I knew they didn't belong to me, I left them alone. My brothers came in. I was back in my room. I was quiet. No one would have known I was there. All of a sudden, I hear my little brother, and he says, Mike's home. And the other one goes, how do you know that? Because our Reese's cups are on the, on the stove. Or he said, Mike's not home. And they said, how do you know that? And he said, because our Reese's cups are still on the stove. And so then when they came back there and they discovered that I was, in fact, there, the little brother goes, well, why do you need our Reese's cups? And the reason why is because things had changed. They didn't know that. But I had a talk with them the next day, and obviously I obeyed the gospel a couple hours later, and had a talk with them, and things had changed. Now, that's not to pat me on the back. That is to say that you should be able to see, whether it's just something as simple as a Reese cup belongs to somebody else and you don't take it, or whatever it is, you should be able to see life has turned around. There's a difference. You're, you're just different than you were before. Sometimes, if you're as bad as I was, and, and I admit that to you, it takes time to prove that. You don't just obey the gospel on Sunday and go into school on Monday and everybody automatically accepts, hey, you're a great Christian and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody believed that. And even when the buzz started going around that I had, in fact, gone to church and become a Christian and I was saved, or however the different ones of them put it, people didn't believe it. And, you know, they didn't have any reason to believe it. I had not been anything close to being a Christian. But over the course of the next several months, and obviously over the course of the next 40 years, all of them know that, you know, he was really serious about what he did. You have to show it. And that's what John is saying. Because sin is a separation from God. Go back with me to Isaiah. Let's revisit what Ekong read for us a moment ago. I'm not going to reread it all, because he did read it for us. But let's just kind of revisit what the Bible says here. It's not that God cannot save any individual. He can. Whether he was as bad as I am or worse, and there are there were actually people worse than me. But whether he's, you know, a person is... Whatever they've done, it's not that God has the inability to save. He can save. But you have to understand that sin is really dark. It is ugly. Did you read the article in the bulletin? A lot of you like that. But the article in the bulletin about Winston Churchill, if you know that name, World War II era, you know, uh, a political official in Great Britain, and he liked to drink, and he drank a lot. And how this woman who was a hostess came up to him, very upset at him because he was drunk at this public function. And she said, you know, Mr. Churchill, you're drunk. You're very drunk. You are very, very drunk. And, of course, you know, Churchill in his wry writ looks across at her, takes out his cigar, and he says, Madam, you are ugly. You are very ugly. You are very, very ugly. But the one difference between us is tomorrow I won't be drunk. You'll still be ugly. 
Now, that was church here. But you know, you have to understand as a Christian that sin is ugly and sin separates us from God. There are no white lies and big dark ones. There are no little sins and big sins. There really isn't, when I said a moment ago, there were people worse than me. There really isn't anyone worse than another one if you have sin. Sin separates you from God. And that's exactly what verse 2 is saying. And one of the first realizations that you have to have is no matter how good a person you are or you think you are, when you have sinned, you are separated from God. That's the way I should see it of myself. And you know, truthfully, even in this day of being politically correct and nobody judges anybody and everybody accepts everybody for everything, I really ought to see other people that way. When a person has sinned, they are separated from God. The truth is, I can't help anyone. The truth really is, God can't help anyone if they refuse to see that sin separates them from God. Notice the passage again. Your iniquities have separated you from your God, or the King James, between you and your God. And your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. When an individual is in sin, they are committing the sin, living in the sin, wanting to commit the sin, doing the sin, practicing the sin, when that is so, God turns His ear against them. If you want to say it like this, God turns His back on them. And God basically is saying to a person, there is nothing between us right now. Your sins have separated you from Me. And so we have to understand that sin separates us from God. We have to be a person who views sin as God views it. We have to be a person who sees the necessity of real repentance. In other words, I can't just come up and say, I want to be a Christian today, and tomorrow morning get up and begin the exact same life, to live the same life as I was living today. Now, it doesn't matter how many sins, quote-unquote, are in your life. If they're just one, you've got to change it. And so, when we look at the Bible and we see the Bible talking about repentance, or we see the Bible talking about people who, quote, come to God, we have to see a complete change in their life. There just can't be what there was before. There's got to be a necessity, or, or seeing a necessity for real repentance. A person has to... Feel the need. And I think that's different. I I believe we understand that language, though. To feel the need to regret what you've done. To feel the need to change your life. If I look at my life and I say, and I, I want you to hear this exactly as I mean to say, if I look at my life and I say, you know what, I'm just as good as anybody else and there just is no reason to change anything. You're not coming to God. He won't have it. The best individual in the world, if he's guilty of one sin, has to regret it and feel, feel the need to change it. There has to be change. And so when we look in the Bible, and let's go back to the Apostle Paul. There is no question on the road to Damascus. I want you to be turning in your Bibles to Acts 26 for a moment. There's no question on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to Paul, you know that. And as Jesus confronted Paul, you know, Paul, who are you? I'm Jesus. 
You know, and you can't go on like you're doing. You can't continue to do the things you've done. And he believed him. He fell down to his knees and he believed him. And Jesus says, go into Damascus and Ananias will tell you what you need to do. And he did that. And when we look at Acts 20, did I say 26? I meant 22. When we look at Acts 22, in verse 16, you can see that indeed Ananias baptized Paul. But I want you to hear what Paul goes on to say as he's telling the Jews about when he became a Christian. So we look at verse 16. Now why tarriest thou rise and be baptized? And Paul was. But let's start reading in verse 17. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, Paul said, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. I was having a vision. And I saw him saying unto me, Make haste, hurry, get you quickly out of Jerusalem, for they won't receive your testimony concerning me. Now notice as he goes on. I said, Lord, now think about this. He's a Christian. There's no question he's been baptized, verse 16. His sins are washed away. He's not guilty of anything he's ever done. I mean, any Christian he ever killed, he's going to name one here. Anyone he put in prison, any of the bad things he had done, he's not guilty of one of those things. But I want you to notice how he feels here. He says in verse 17, or verse uh, 19, I said, Lord, they know that I am prisoned and I beat in every synagogue them that believed on you. Now, admittedly, he can be saying that from the tone of, you know, we both know Jesus, it's cool between us, but they know it and they're not going to listen to him. I think when you listen to the other things he says, you get an idea of the tone behind that. Look at the next verse. When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed. Now I want you to notice that. The blood of your martyr Stephen was shed. I also was standing by. And I was consenting. Literally in the original language, I was voting for his death. And I kept the the raiment, the clothes of them that slew him. Which means, if I understand custom in that day... The guy that was in charge, he consented or voted, held the raiment of those that literally did the killing. Paul's in charge of this. And what he's saying to Jesus is, you can't send me out to preach. I understand. I know who you are now. I repent of that. I'll do anything you want me to do. I know I'm forgiven, but I'm not worthy to go out there and preach because I did this stuff. And, of course, Jesus answers and says, no, I'll send you away from here. You know, maybe you're right. You can't go knock on, you know, the Jew's door, the next Jew's door down the street and say, hey, I've changed everything. I've turned everything wrong, around, so believe me now. Maybe you can't do that. But there's work you can do. And so I'm going to send you to do that. But let's, let's go a little bit further and notice how Paul feels. I'm looking at 1 Timothy 1. When we studied this in the men's class, I made a comment, and I, I believe this. I'm not sure everybody, uh, maybe here they would, but I'm not sure everybody in the world would agree with me on this. But I look at Paul express, still expressing, even at the end of his life, this is some 30 years after his conversion, he still regrets what he's done. Now, I know what that feels like, and I know some of you do. You know, you go out there and you commit some of those sins, you do some of those things you do, I've done them, and you pay the consequences. You know you're forgiven. You deal with that. You pray about it, 
You trust God, you reread the passages again and again, and God tells you and reassures you you are forgiven. But you're sorry for what you've done. And when you've hurt other people and you know that, maybe you made an impression on them, scarred them even for life. You know that. So it's only right you regret it. And I think that's what he's doing here if you look at verse 15. This is a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I want you to notice, of whom I am chief. And what I think Paul feels is, Jesus will save anybody because he saved me and I'm the worst. And I'll show you another verse that I think says that. And even if that one doesn't, I'm sure this one does. Look at Ephesians 3. Because Paul makes this point. Again, this would be almost 30 years after he became a Christian. Close to it, if not. But look down in verse 8 of Ephesians 3. Unto me, he says, and notice, who am who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace driven. You know what Paul is saying there is, I'm less than anybody else. Now we look at that and we say, man, you're the Apostle Paul. I've known people that speak of the Apostle Paul almost as if he was he's deified. You know, Paul is like way up here and everybody else is down here. But that's not how Paul saw himself. Paul knew that God had been filled with grace and mercy. God had forgiven him. But Paul never forgot. There never was any arrogance on his part. Never a time when Paul didn't look back on whether it was killing Stephen or who knows how many other Christians or tearing families apart and putting brothers and sisters in jail in prison for that. Paul never looked back on that and did not feel how horrible the sin was. There's no arrogance on his part. There's only humility. I did that. Thank God. God is who he is. Or I would not be forgiven. It's so horrible what I did. I know there are some sitting here that feel that. And if you've committed those things that are terrible and hurt other people like Paul, then you ought to feel it. I ought to feel it. And yet what we should also feel is, man, the greatness of the love of God. And man, that God would forgive someone like me. But I want you to understand, if we don't feel How then do we claim to really repent? If we don't regret what we've done, if we kind of arrogantly look in the face of our sins and begin to justify, because I think that's, as Ekon went on to read in Isaiah 59, if you read verses 3 and 4, I think that's exactly what's going on there. There's a justification, there's a rationalization, there's an excuse, there's a looking in the face of truth, looking in the face of right, And basically saying, you know, it isn't as bad. I'm not as bad as all that. You are as bad as all that. And you ought to feel that. You are as bad as all that if you have sinned against God. And I believe the Apostle Paul felt that. Real change comes because we understand what we have done. Let me go back to the book of Isaiah for a moment. Let's read some verses. Not a lot of commentary, but I do want to read a series of verses here. Four or five verses. Go with me to 
Isaiah chapter 1, and notice as the book begins. I love this passage, and it's one that I stumbled on, you know, right after I became a Christian, and boy, it makes sense to me. Look at verse 16 as God speaks to his people. He says, wash you, make you clean, put away. The idea of, you know, as strong a term as that of divorce. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Why don't you stop and think about that for a moment. You ever felt like, I mean, you were out somewhere, maybe nobody around that really knew you, or certainly no one around you that knew you were a Christian. And you were doing things, you knew they were wrong, but you felt like you were getting away with it. Maybe not even, you know, there's a lot of people in here who have never done that. I have. God saw it. And that's what God is saying. You want to change your life. You want to repent and put the evil away from my eyes. Cease to do evil. Stop doing the sin. That's repentance. Look at verse 17. Learn to do well. Notice the transition there. Step one. Stop. Stop it. Quit doing what you're doing. Step two. Start learning what it means to be a Christian. In this case, a child of God in the Old Testament. Learn to do well. Notice this phrase. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. What's he saying there? Start looking at things that are right. Fill your time up with doing good, doing right, rather than selfishly sinning. Let's read another passage. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18. And this is probably a familiar one to you, but Ezekiel chapter 18, and we're going to notice God's description of, I believe, repentance. Go down to verse 17 with me of Ezekiel 18. Notice how he says, I knew that didn't sound right. Wrong chapter. All right. Ezekiel chapter 18, and I want to go down to verse 27. There it is. When he says this, again, when the wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he has committed, he turns away from it, and he does that which is lawful and right, he'll save his soul. Now, how simple is that? And don't we all really understand that? What is repentance? You can say it any way you want to say it, But the idea of repentance is you stop doing bad and you start doing good. As he goes on here, verse 28. Because he considers and turns away from all his transgressions that he has committed. What does that mean? That means I don't pick and choose which sins I'm going to quit and which ones I'm going to hold on to. We've actually had people come to this place. And all through the years that I've been preaching and expressing a desire of being a Christian but telling you up front. There is this sin, or maybe this sin, or two or three, that I'm not going to stop. And my answer is always the same. Then I can't baptize you, and you can't be a Christian until you're willing to give it all up. All of it has to change. Notice as God says, if you do that, you'll surely live and not die. Yet, saith the house of Israel, verse 29, the way of the Lord is not equal. The word is fair. God's word is not fair. God's word is telling me to give up everything that he says is wrong. And, you know, I'm willing to give up a lot. That would be fair, right? I mean, we make a deal. We compromise. 
I give some things, you give some things. God's not fair. Is that how we really feel? And how he goes on to say here in this passage, verse 31, Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O Israel? And that's what God is still asking of us. Let's read again. Philippians. Go with me to Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, I think Paul echoes something John the Baptist said. I'm going to go back to that passage in just a second. But go with me to Philippians 1 here. And notice how Paul, as he talks to these Christians in Philippi, says this. And I'm just going to jump in the middle in verse 9. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound. They are already Christians. But that your love may abound or increase yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And that you may approve things that are excellent, verse 10, of high honor, high, you know, moral view is the idea. And that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Notice verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Now that sounds very much like what John said. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. One other passage, James chapter 4. We've been studying this on Wednesday nights in my class downstairs, but let's read this together. James says, in beginning in verse 6 here, God gives more grace, more grace obviously than anything that is within me that would be against God. God is able to favor me. And that's why he says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now notice verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Sounds very much like Isaiah 1. Purify your hearts. Notice the phrase, you double-minded. Can there be a Christian that is double-minded? Can there be a Christian who has two trains of thought, two ways of thinking? The one is, go with God. Do everything God says. Everything God says is right. Let me stay on the straight and narrow. But there's the other part of my mind that says, get off that track and go over here and do this because you know you like it. Do this. Have some fun. Do this thing. Do that thing. And after all, sometime you can change all that. That's a double-minded individual. Be afflicted, verse 9. What does that mean? I, you know, I look at that passage and I'm, I think about this. I guess I meditate on this passage quite a bit. Let me tell you what I think about being afflicted. One of the things that afflicts you is when you tear yourself away from some sin. And I'm going to tell you why. Because we all understand, and this passage speaks a lot of, about lust. We all understand how we lust. We know what it means to want something, desire something, where it eats at you. Now, I'm not just talking about, you know, just a passing fancy of, boy, it'd be nice to have a chocolate nut sundae right now. And then it's gone two minutes later. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where you dwell on it and you think about it and you go through your day and it builds and it builds and it builds until you go out there and you really foul up. That's what I'm talking about. And the individual that is afflicted, certainly one individual, and maybe the one he's talking about that's afflicted, is the one that starts employing those hard things to deny himself or herself what they really, really, really want to do. And you're going to go through some hard times. 
If you've ever seen someone, you know, one of the easiest pictures in the world is to watch a, a, a poor, pitiful drug addict going through withdrawal. I know some of you can well identify with that. It's, it's horrible to watch it. You feel terrible for that individual because they are really suffering, some of which. Thank God some people have the courage to do that. And they're strong. And they turn to God. I believe he's saying that for every Christian that's involved in any sin. Be afflicted. Mourn. Let it eat at you. Let it tear you up that you are not changing like God wants you to change. As he goes on, weep. Cry about it. Let it be the kind of thing that hurts you because it has to be removed from your life. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. We live in a society that would tell us to ever mourn about anything is a bad thing. Just be positive. Be up. Laugh. Smile. All the time. That ain't life. It is a great thing when you get to the point where you've accomplished, you've done good, and you wear a smile on your face because you earned it. But it is not. That God is saying to us, if you ain't positive 24 hours a day, something wrong with you. There is a time to look at yourself and say, I need to go through the hard work on me. And I need to get this turned around. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness, he says, and humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. There is a time to laugh. And there is a time to cry. Ecclesiastes 3. So what does this have to do with repentance and fruits worthy of repentance? I want you to go back with me to the book of Luke. And look with me at Luke chapter 3. Now this is what happened that brought this phrase about. John the Baptist, and you know that John was the cousin of Jesus that was sent out as the forerunner, we always say. He was the last Old Testament prophet, and he was sent to preach about the Messiah that was six months younger than him and on the way. And as John preaches this, he opens up his message, and if you'll notice, down in verse, uh, oh, where do I want to start with this? Let's start in verse 3. He came into all the country about Jordan, and he was preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, I want to really focus on these two phrases. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. What is he saying there? Well, it's just as much as when anyone becomes a Christian. Your heart is filled with sin. Your life is filled with sin. You've got to prepare for the Lord moving in and living in you. And part of that preparation is to clean the house up. I don't know how it is at your house, but I know when we have visitors coming, well, we get busy cleaning, you know. You clean the house up. And in this case, Jesus is moving into my heart and moving into my life, and my, my life needs to be cleaned up. Prepare the way of the Lord. Notice, make his paths straight. You know, if I were having a guest come to my house... I'm not going to go down into the living room and make sure that I throw things all over the floor so that when they walk in, the first thing they do is stumble and fall in the floor. Make his path straight. The idea is clear the path for Jesus in your life. 
Now, it goes on here. The multitude in verse 7 that came forth to be baptized of him, he said this to them, O generation of vipers. What does that mean? You bunch of snakes. <laughs> I mean, that's bad. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In verse 8 he said, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Or bear fruit worthy of repentance. What does that mean? He goes on to explain that, I believe here. Verse 10, the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered it. He broke it down, as we would say in verse 11. He that has two coats... Let him impart to him that has none. He that has none. Does this sound like Isaiah filling your life up with good charitable works? He says, he that has food, let him do likewise. Well, the tax collectors came to be baptized in verse 12. And they said, Master, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, treat people fairly. Exact no more than that which is appointed you. You've got a job. Your job is to collect taxes, but you make a really good living by cheating people out of more than they owe. Stop that. Treat people fairly, decently. The soldiers came, verse 14, and they demanded, saying, what shall we do? And he said, do violence to no man. Now, that's hard, you know. You're a Roman soldier and you're going to do violence to no man. Neither accuse any falsely. And they were in a position of power. And it's easy when you're in a position of power, you know, to make other people look bad and make them look small and get them into trouble, and you look better. He said, you stop doing that. And he says, be content with your wages. You take a job as a soldier, you get paid a certain amount, be content with that, rather than trying to get everything you can that belongs to everybody else. You understand, as you read this, what he's saying is, prove the change in your life. When you and I regret what we've done, when we really intend to change, when we start changing our life, people will know that. We will prove it. We will show it. And maybe we are like the Apostle Paul. And you know, interestingly enough, if we were to go over, and I lost it here, but I'm pretty sure it's in Acts 26, so let's give that a try. Paul almost quotes this in Acts 26. Um, Agrippa, Agrippa. Yeah, 19 and 20. Notice this. O Agrippa, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Talking about when Jesus, you know, appeared to him. But I showed first unto them of Damascus. So Jesus said, go to the Gentiles. He went. And I showed to them of Damascus, he said, and of Jerusalem, and all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles. Notice, that they should repent. And turn to God and do works meet for repentance. What is Paul saying there? This is what I taught people. You repent. You change your life. You show people you've changed your life. And that's hard sometimes. Because I tell you exactly what happens. You're a senior in high school. You've lived like the devil. You know You've been horrible. And if anybody was a good person and they were a Christian, and Tommy Thrasher, if you ever listened to this recording, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He was a teacher of mine. He's a fellow gospel preacher. He lived like that. 
And you turn your life around, you obey the gospel. Well, Tommy Thrasher meets you the next morning and shocks you when he says, Good morning, brother. And you're like, what? But there are plenty of people that come up to you and say, Who do you think you're kidding? You're fooling. You're kidding. You, a Christian, you, come on. And maybe they even get nasty about it. I won't even repeat some of the things that were said. It hurts. You want everybody to come up and throw their arms around you like Tommy Thrasher. You know, welcome, brother, into the fold. You want everybody to feel that way. But they don't. Because they're human beings. And what they're going to do is they're going to sit back and they're going to say, You show me your fruits meet for, worthy of, your works of repentance. You show that and then I'll believe you. You know, as a Christian, you can take that two ways. You can get upset, and you can say, that's not fair. And you can be mad about it, and perhaps you can even let that be the motivation to say, what's the use anyway, and forget it. Or you can think about it like Paul did. They got a point. I killed Stephen. I did those things. And that's where I had to come to. They got a point. I did those things. I was that person. Why should anybody believe in me? I know God does. But why should anybody around me believe in me? And so you suck it up and you say, okay, I'll show you. And you start living your life proving that your repentance was genuine. And one by one, not everybody, but person by person, People will come up to you and they'll say, they'll congratulate you, they'll welcome you, they'll appreciate you, etc., etc. Not everybody, but a lot of people will. That's what God is teaching us in bring forth works or fruits worthy of repentance. Well, like Wes, I went over a little bit. I guess we're wound up from the debate, but let me close very quickly. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we've talked about becoming a Christian. Why don't you do that tonight? And if you are and you look at your life and you say, you know what, I need strength from God to show my repentance. Because I'm really serious about being a Christian. Then you can ask and we'll pray together with you for it. Please come while we stand. Oh, you're mine.